facts of truth, which is the truth, that everything is going to happen, it's going to happen in its time, not because I want it to. That's really the piece of wisdom. Wishing will not make it so. And when, when the conditions are right, things will happen. Of course, if you say that to somebody, you know, um, if it's meant to be, it'll be. That's one of those other things that people like to say to each other. Well, if it's meant to be, then it'll be. But that doesn't sit well if uh, you really need it to be now. It doesn't make you feel any better because then it's, it's, you might be thinking, well, if it's not meant to be, I could just be in this grief forever that it's not happening. So it really requires a kind of wisdom that really you can't decide to have. You can't get up and say, tomorrow I am going to have such a deep understanding and trust of karma that I'm going to really be able to rest in the world. I think somebody said it before, saying quietly was being able to trust, or as Sally said about faith, being able to trust. Maybe that is the final thing about faith and not being afraid is that you can trust that the truth is we're not any of us in charge. We can't make things happen however much we want them to. Everything makes things happen. We can't know what causes and conditions will happen. It's really uh, one of the, karma is one of the four imponderables that the Buddha talked about. And to be able to say, I just don't know. But it's all right not knowing. And the other piece of wisdom would be to know, I have two choices here. I can rejoice wholeheartedly in this other person's good fortune, in which case I share the pleasure of rejoicing, or I can hang on to my little piece of irritability and envy about what it is that I haven't got. Sometimes you can know that and not give up your little piece of irritability and envy anyway, much as you'd like to. But then you, it still comes back on compassion. You say, look at this. If I could give up this envy, I'd be peaceful. But I can't. So it's like um, one of the metaphors that um, is, uh, the Buddha often used had to do with getting uh, stabbed by a, uh, a, a dagger. And he said, it's like someone stabs you with a dagger, and then you keep stabbing yourself afterwards. You stab yourself a few more times. You could just pull out the dagger and stop stabbing, or you could continue to stab yourself, which is what we mostly do when we say, oh, I wish it was me. Why isn't it me? It could be me. It's not me yet is the piece of equanimity, and it might not be, in which case I could at least stop stabbing. You know, there's no rule. That's it. You know, why not me? Why I can't have this? Well, why me? You know, it's the karma of things, but which would require us saying, really, that things are so well beyond our understanding and our control, and they're not a matter of punishment or um, reward. I think that the karma stories that you often hear are on the level of punishment and reward. That's not a level at which they make sense to me. I, I don't think that that's true. Uh, I could be wrong, but that's not a way that it works for me as a, as a kind of a moral stick that you're not enjoying this life because of something that you did wrong in a former life. I think that it's all, everybody's karma. I think we are all connected to each other. And then what happens is what happens out of relationship. 
and that what really we are experiencing are the effects of all actions in all times, the fruit of all karma since the beginning of creation. That's just my sense of it. So those are the three um, Brahma-viharas that rest in equanimity, that metta, or benevolence, and karuna, compassion, and mudita, sympathetic joy, are all reflections of a heart of equanimity. They, re- they depend on equanimity. When we don't have that balance in mind, compassion turns into pity, which is the near enemy of compassion. Instead of really feeling with the person, you think that poor person over there is in bad trouble. It's not a very good place to be a friend out of, and it's not a very good place to be a therapist out of, really. You think about uh, that person over there that I am helping really think about the ways in which people thrive in therapeutic situations because they sense that both people there are together. So having that experience and feeling it together. One person is only having that particular situation in their life. But if there's no sense of... uh, There could be so much a sense of you got into this trouble because you didn't see clearly. So easy to feel one up and other people. It's a way of protecting oneself because then if you have to say we're not protected, it could be us. It could be anybody. So the near enemy means it looks like that, but it's not that. So the near enemy of compassion is pity. The near enemy of um the near enemy of friendliness is uh, attachment. Really being friendly to people, but hoping you'll get something back from them. We'll skip the near enemy of, of mudita. It's given in the text, but it's it's so... It's given as exuberance, but I don't like the definition of it, so we'll leave it. The near enemy of uh, equanimity is um, indifference. Looks like equanimity, but it's not. So it's saying, you know, it's all karma. Everybody's response, whatever anybody's got, it's lawful. So there's nothing I can do. That that's a non sequitur. Everybody's lawfully having what they're having, but the what we do now makes a difference in terms of what people will be having. So if we do or we don't do, makes a difference. So that's the Brahma Vihara teaching, you know in a little bit, in the littlest bit that I can do. Do you have a question about any of that? I just, I find one thing I can't, I, I just don't agree in that, maybe because I, I have won a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I was an undefeated champion on the $100,000 pyramid. Mm-hmm. And the reaction of my friends was just what you were saying. That I think it's an issue not of they could use the money, mm-hmm. but of being chosen, mm-hmm. being validated, of mm-hmm. being, well, if God really loved me or the universe really saw mm-hmm. how good I'm being, I would have been chosen. Mm-hmm. And to me, what, what's ironic is I've never had a problem. Money comes to me. Mm-hmm. If you want money, come see me. I, I, I mean, I'm easy, <laughs> honestly, that has never been an issue in my whole life. 
finding happiness and all that is one of the issues. Mm -hmm. I laugh at people who think money will do it. Mm -hmm. Because if that were true, Sonny Von Bulow would be one of the happiest individuals mm -hmm. on the planet. Mm -hmm. She's in a coma. So, it, it, to me, what I have a problem with what you've just been saying is um, the inability of us to understand that we have all the power to get everything we need mm -hmm. and that we've given it up by this ego that thinks I have to be given something from the outside. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's my Wizard of Oz mentality, like you've always had the ruby shoes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and I don't really want to get into a debate with you. It just, just struck me because having been on the other end of having received that and having friends say, why doesn't that happen to me? Mm -hmm. Instead of rejoicing with me for what was really fun and mm -hmm. allowed me, I was doing some acting at the time, and it allowed me, because I won this money, to continue with the acting. And that was that was the joy for me. It wasn't mm -hmm. that, oh, now I can go buy something or give something. Mm -hmm. I will do that anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's the people who don't think they can do that until something from, it's that locus of control, is it within you or, or outside? Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually don't think we we, we could when you said we don't have to have a debate. I don't know if I would have a debate because I, using your line about um, uh, what is it that we actually need, I I very much feel that um, a heart capable of equanimity and compassion is all that we actually need. So uh, I don't think that there's anything else that we need. I think that what happens is from time to time when we are challenged. We get to feel that there is something that we need that would make us happy. But um, if we got that, we might need something else to make us happy. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot recently, about just that very line about you have everything you need. We'll talk about that later this afternoon because there's a whole practice around that that I'd like for us to do together. Yeah. I could. I haven't decided if I want to do it right this minute, um, and whether I want to be careful and do that in a in. A, I, I want to be careful. That's that's. Not, <laughs> I heard myself say I'm making a decision about whether or not I want to be careful. I do want to be careful. So let's figure out what's the careful thing to do. Um, there's a thing about. Uh, there's a feeling in the mind. When that, at least for me, when I am fairly relaxed and equanimous and in my life, not just sitting in a retreat, but in my life, where things do not uh, upset my heart as much as they might ordinarily. It's a kind of a um, lightness of being where uh, uh, I'm less startleable. It's not indifferent. It's just less startled and therefore less reactive and less uh, less contentious in my heart, less resistant, happier, which sometimes, because I'm not so used to being that way, it's a you know, development over years, feels just bordering on insouciance, just bordering on maybe too casual, like, how could you be so casual about things? The world's in an awful place. It is. In my mind, it's that that I don't think it's casual about 
I, it just doesn't come up for me as a problem. I think I'm, I think I'm the opposite of casual. I think I'm anything, if anything, much more passionate. To the degree to which I am less frightened and less, um, less overwrought, to the degree to which I have any more equanimity than I used to, I think I have much more passion. Um, I just, let's leave it that way because I want us to sit a little bit. Anybody have any questions before we sit some more? I'd like to do the following. If, you, if Because I feel I have a feeling that we're up. Are you awake? I mean, I, I feel good about where we are. So I don't feel in a rush to have lunch. I would like to... Because, no, because the energy gets different during the day, so I try to feel it and see what to do. I'd like for us to sit a little bit and do the other piece of the meditation that we did before. And I'd like for us to move a little bit. It's about 10, 15 minutes sitting. And I'd like for us to get up and do a movement practice, which is the same as going out and do a walking practice, except more focused. And we have Rasiko with us. And then I want to come back and talk a little bit, and we'll be eating by one. Can you hold out until? Okay. Let's do it that way then. Keep in mind that uh, what we did with our sitting before was we tried to develop composure in the mind, um, in the sense of balance. I'd like for us to do a little bit of uh, wisdom practice. It's interesting to think about what kind of a, what kind of a, a contemplative practice is going to be a wisdom practice. You can't say ready, set, go, be wise. Uh, only have wise realizations now for the next 15 minutes. But I think this is a way to do it. Because in fact this practice is the practice of developing wisdom through paying attention moment to moment, not in addition to what is happening. Just as we did this morning, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, feeling relaxed, feeling present. That's what's happening. Under what's happening, in a sense you might say the generic, what's really happening, is that things are changing all the time. When you say to somebody, when I first heard from my teachers that one of the insights, primary insights of insight practice was that things change. They're impermanent. I thought to myself, everybody knows that. That's not that big of a deal. But we don't really know it. I mean, we kind of know it, but we forget it. We forget it when we're upset. We feel the upset will never leave. Forget it actually when we're uh, healthy and feeling good. We forget that it's fragile. It might not last that long. Get it when we fall in love and we think it'll never end and we feel it when it ends and we feel we'll never fall in love again. And things keep changing. One way to develop on some, I believe, cellular level, marrow of the bones level, the awareness that things keep changing is to notice moment to moment in contemplative practice 
that things keep changing. So sit in a way that's comfortable for you. For the first minute or so, let yourself just hear the sounds in the room. You can hear my voice. Then I'll be quiet. You can feel your body breathing. In these next 10 minutes, as I'm quiet, I'd like you to name for yourself in your mind what your experience is. Breath coming in, breath coming out, breath coming in, breath coming out, pressure on my back, pressure on my feet, whatever it is. Sound happening. Coolness, warmness, feelings in your body. I'd like you to also name for yourself the state of your mind. Sleepiness is here, or sleepiness was here, now it's not here anymore. Or a lot of interest is here, or grumpiness is here, restlessness is here, calm is here. Name for yourself what's true of your mind for a couple of minutes, as if you were logging into a log. What's the temperature of my body and my mind? What's the whole of my consciousness right now? And then keep on doing it. And then by and by, see if you can, in the way of Fellini movies, moving the camera back a little bit, notice for yourself not so much what's happening, but what's true about what's happening. And the hint is that what should be happening is that it's all changing. We sit from moment to moment in the middle of a changing field of body and mind sensations. Arising and passing away is happening in every moment, which is the key piece of wisdom that the Buddha taught. It's a way to have a first-hand encounter with that piece of wisdom.
have eyes closed the whole time, and we were moving. In fact, what we're practicing is developing that place of steadiness. That's the place of being able to see clearly, really understand deeply that things are the way they are. They just are. And that there's a way of compassionate response that is sufficient unto the moment. So what we're really practicing is finding that place in the middle of our lives. Each of us has complex and complicated lives. And the life doesn't get changed by practicing, but the heart gets steadied. I'm very happy that we're having this period of time, enough of it, for this morning, and I think we'll carry it through the day, of really developing a a familiarity with a place of resting mind. And for this little period of sitting, just perhaps for uh, five minutes now, see if you can make the whole of your experience, the breath coming and going, the thoughts coming and going, the liking and disliking, preferring and not preferring. Just let them all be there. This is a teaching from Nyosho Kempo, a contemporary Tibetan teacher. Rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the resounding fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace. Everything is there, and the heart is sufficient unto itself. Don't have to do anything. Practice not doing. 
Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought like the resounding fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace. I would like to make a suggestion based on my sense of how the room feels, and you tell me if you're all right with this. Um, often, uh, in fact, in the last three of these Brahma Vihara days that we've had, we've taken, uh, I think, a half hour for lunch. Did we take a half hour? One hour. One hour. <laughs> I have two things in my mind. I'm going to talk them out loud and it'll come to me what to do. One is, uh, I have said in the other three, if you really came with someone and you really want to talk, really go off and talk with them because that's what you really want to do. And this room is beautifully still this morning. It's just really still in here. And the, te- the equanimity teachings are, let it go, really. And can you? And discover the stillness of put it down. You know, we feel like doing a lot of things. Feel like responding, feel like reacting. And certainly this is not about indifference or about non-response. It's about careful response that comes from a place of wisdom and real compassion. I'm thinking about whether it wouldn't be the wise and compassionate thing for us to each do for ourselves to take a really quiet lunch and do this really as a retreat and not really have an hour now because we have a certain amount of energy I'm all right if we finish earlier. The energy peaks in the end of the day. And I know that people start, you know, it just goes for a while. Would you be all right about doing your lunch in a half hour quietly? 
as a retreat, we'll work the time around. And hold, be responsible. Here, yeah, this would be a great practice. Be responsible for holding this space for everybody else. There's a way in which you do it as a therapist, you do it as a good friend, you do it as a, a retreatant, where you hold the space quiet for everybody else by not behaving in a flurry. You know how that is? So other people get it. This is a place in which I can relax my mind. I don't have to do anything. So hold the space for each other for a half hour, in or out. It's not very pleasant out. You might want to stay in. So we'll start to gather back here at 20 past 1 and sit, and then at 1.30. I'll teach some more and we'll sit some more. We'll adjust the time at the end. But do this as a retreat. Hold the space for yourself. It's so rare to get a day of practice. So um, I'm trying to think of just what order I want to say this now because um, uh, I just had a lovely time, by the way. I was uh, interviewed by uh, uh, the Australian Broadcasting Company uh, for a documentary they're doing on uh, Buddhist practice in the West. and. Uh, if it's all right with you, they'll come in and take a picture of you all sitting here in a little while. And is it all right with you if they come in and we make history? We'll be on. Uh, and uh, but it was a, a kind of a, uh, it was an interesting experience for me because uh, I hadn't known that I would be. Uh, so. Uh, it was a very good practice in the teaching of equanimity because just uh, just before lunch, I said, we're all in such a quiet space. and um, So we'll now just take a half hour. And uh, my plan was to go for a half hour and have lunch. And all of a sudden, here was Sally, who had been interviewed, and uh, said, okay, here are these folks, and they want to interview you. And, uh, and I love being interviewed, so it was fine. That wasn't a problem. Um, just you know, right away, think I'll fix my hair and uh, that. And we talked a little bit as they were getting ready to interview, because uh, I said uh, it'll be fine. I said uh, because Rasika will lead some movement, and everyone will be since this is an uh, an equanimity day. But what we're practicing is, you know, it, whatever happens next, you just do it. So I said, everybody will be fine with it because everyone will understand from the great perspective of wisdom that uh, we're doing this from the point of view of uh, that our motivation for doing this is to uh, teach some really good things to the whole of the Australian viewing audience. And uh, at the same time, I also said, I need to be sure that that's my motivation as well, 
not uh, that I'm fixing my hair and looking for some lipstick because I'm going to be on Australian television and I want to look good or get known in Australia. And I said, well, you know, if I were going to be completely truthful, be about 90% to enlighten the Australian <laughs> viewing public and 10% cares about whether or not my hair is combed and how I look. And um, I, th I tell you that partly because, first of all, because it's true, and partly because I think we always have a mixed motivation, you know, that if we waited all the time to be sure that our intent was completely pure, I wonder how much we would do, ever, <laughs> you know, that uh, everybody has, a, the, the people who are therapists here all have the motivation really to help people. It's, a, it's, it's really what causes people to become therapists. Mostly my experience is that people become therapists because they've had some very good therapeutic experience. Uh, that was my reason. And then they say, well, that was so helpful to me. I'll do it for other people. And also, it's a way of making a living. And also, it's a way of really teaching oneself. It has all kinds of... Uh, it's, it's not a totally selfless endeavor. I wonder if anything is. So it relates to the note that somebody left on my seat also about, can you talk a little bit more about what techniques there are for staying present for people in pain or distress or um, not numbing out or becoming overwhelmed? I think that's really such an important question because it's really not only for uh, therapists but for uh, the rest of us as well in a life, how to be really present for people and not, um, not be overwhelmed when what they're telling us frightens us, um, how to not numb out, how to really pay attention, because it's really in the paying attention that people are uh, sustained. Don't you think that, you know, when you think about, this is for people who are therapists and people who are not therapists. When you think about it, when you're with someone and you can really be with them in their distress, it's not because you had some good idea about their situation, is it? It's not because what kind of a good idea can you have? What can you tell people that would be solace when people have been really grieved in some way? The only thing I think, or the central thing at least, I'm not sure it's the only thing, but certainly the central thing that sustains people is the sense that someone else feels some connection to their distress. We say, maybe it's a little bit of jargon to say we feel heard, but really, we feel heard as if someone else got it, don't we? Okay, in order to feel that we get it, we have to stay present for it. Here, I'll tell you a story. This is, this is, um, this is a story about being a therapist and why we get it and when we don't get it. A number of years ago, um, a person came to see me. I will thoroughly disguise this story, of course, so anybody, who, anybody who's not a therapist here might not know that when you tell a story, you so thoroughly disguise it so the person themselves could be here. They aren't, and they wouldn't know it was them. But let's say it was a woman that I was seeing at some point who came to see me because uh, she had heard me teach just in a, in a situation like this and thought I'd be a good therapist for her. 
And she came to tell me uh, about her sadnesses, and she had a number of things that were causing her to be distressed at, at that point in her life, some health issues, um, uh, a, a, a lover relationship of some years that had just ended, and the fact that one of her children was uh, had left home and was in, in another city and really sounded from her report in a very difficult emotional and physical and, and to my point of view, hazardous state. And of all of the things that concerned her and that she uh, presented to me, the thing that seemed most of concern to me was the fact that her child was in such a difficult situation. But she didn't talk about the child in a difficult situation. She talked about the love relationship that she'd just been abandoned in and how miserable she was about it and how preoccupied she was with getting it going again. And I wanted to th say to her, I was thinking, this is not what's important. This is what's important. But, you know, if you're a therapist, you know, you let people talk about what's important to them and the grief that they feel. So I listened and I listened. I saw a number of times and I felt badly because I felt that nothing was happening. That you feel when you're in a relationship with people that either it's there or it's not. And I could feel we were two people in a room but not connected. And in fact, after a couple of times, I said, you know, maybe I'm not the right therapist for you. Maybe you need to do some other modality. And she said, no, no, I need to be here with you. And the very next time that she came for an appointment, I, I happened to be up and standing at the window as she came around the corner. I could look out the window and see her coming. And I thought to myself, as she came around the corner, I was paying enough attention to my experience to feel my heart drop. And... Uh, I realized when I saw her, in using a, a mindfulness language, I realized, I don't like her. That was really the truth. I don't like her. And at that moment, I was startled because, you know, I'm, I'm generally, I'm a kind person, first of all, and I have a good intention in being a therapist, but I caught myself really not liking her. And then I realized I don't like her because she frightens me. Really, we don't like people when they frighten me, you because she represented for me mothers who don't take good care of their children. I'm so in awe of therapists who work with parents who are abusive to their children. I think they have an incredible heart. It's difficult for me to work with people who don't see that as an issue. It's my own fear, the fear there are people in the world who don't take care of their children. As soon as I realized I'm afraid of her. That's why I don't like her. And by that time, she'd come in and hello and sat down. And what we did is we were sitting, and just as I am with you, and she was talking. And what I was doing was I was doing metta meditation. I was doing metta meditation for myself. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be free of suffering. May I be at ease. May I be not frightened. And I felt after a while, and of course I'm doing it quietly to myself and listening to her. So from her point of view, she wouldn't know I was doing anything. I'm looking and listening, and in fact listening, because I've done so much metta, it can just happen just by itself. I don't have to be thinking about it. And by and by, I began to feel really at ease. And as soon as I felt at ease and at home to myself, I could really see her as she actually was. And I realized she's in pain. She's in terrible pain. And then I could do that same loving-kindness meditation for her, 
May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be well. May your suffering end. Meantime, I'm not saying anything, of course, at all. I'm just sitting and listening. But the room changed. You know how it is in a therapeutic encounter where suddenly the room changes and you know that the person that you're talking to feels heard because, in fact, you've heard them. And I felt that I had heard her because I'd come home to myself. I had been beside myself, so to speak, with fear that I had not noticed. Now, if I call it to myself, if I really am mindful, and I say, this is the truth, I'm afraid, then I come home to myself. Every time you tell yourself the truth, you come home. When you're there, there is the possibility that we'll connect with somebody in some meaningful way, and then they will feel it. And it's the feeling of connection, after all, that really is what sustains, what makes people able to go back out into their lives. Is that not your experience? Is that a... So that's really partly the answer to that question about how do we manage to not numb out. Part of it is the intention to be present And then the other part of it is the practice of continually paying attention to what's true. You know, when I finished that interview with the television people, I I thought to myself when I had finished, I had a good time and I knew you were here and I knew you were doing the movement practice with Rasika. And I also knew when I uh, got up from that half hour of talking that we had been together in such a quiet space all morning, and I was kind of whizzed up from that. And I said to myself and to them, take a breath, Sylvia. Uh, It's really always the same practice of notice what's the mind state. Keep the intention of what would you like to be? Where would you like to be? I'd like to be present, and I'd like to be balanced. And then it's as simple as taking the next breath. Say, I'd like to be here. I'll tell myself the truth. I'm breathing in and I'm breathing out. The truth is always the way that you get back into this space. I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. That's as true as anything else. I'm excited. Maybe I'm very excited. Now I'm calming down a little bit. Okay, now I go in. Now I see these folks. They're all doing the yoga. They look good. I feel fine. Take a breath. It's a running readout on how am I really And then we live in ourselves. We inhabit our lives. You know, one of the best things that anyone ever said to me, it wasn't one of my teachers, it was one of one of my friend's teachers. I don't even remember which one of the Spirit Rock teachers it was who said the best thing that any of their teachers ever said to them about practice, the best practice instruction was, is, it's your life, don't miss it. Isn't that good? I really love that. So now, take a breath in and out. Would you like to sit for five minutes and then we'll talk? A little bit, five minutes sit. Five minutes sit doing the the summation of the three practices that we practiced this morning. Practice to develop composure, practice to develop wisdom, practice to develop resolve, which is really well, the one we did just before lunch. So f- starting with being just relaxed and alert in your body, 
letting the breath come in and out, just at its own rate, not fixing it in any way. Not only does it happen all by itself, but really, really understanding it, that it does happen all by itself, without a separate self, turns out to be one of the key insights connecting us to each other and to all beings. You can let your attention float with the breath, arising and passing away, arising and passing away. You give yourself the instruction to feel the whole of your body. You feel yourself sitting, however you are on the floor, on a chair, with eyes closed. We have the kind of feedback from our body that lets us know what position we're in. listening even to the sound of silence. Keeping in mind that mindfulness practice uses the breath, uses the body, uses hearing, uses every dimension of our experience as a meditation object. Really to teach the mind how to pay attention so that ultimately it's not about breath or body or hearing or feeling in any particular way. Ultimately, it's about being able to pay attention so well that we're able to recognize most profoundly what's true. And come to some place of wisdom and peacefulness and equanimity. So we'll sit for a few minutes.
As we sit, I'd like to add one more meditation instruction. Really from the question that someone asked over the lunchtime about techniques for returning to a place of uh, presence and awakened attention. I think that the determination to persevere, to try to clear the mind, to try to be present, to try to stay awake, rests very much on um, the faith, the trust that awake presence is the best place to be that awake presence is ultimately peaceful, ultimately a happy place to be. That in the middle of our lives, in the middle of a world, in the middle of everything that's happening, it's possible to really be present to it. Not only possible, but the best possible way to be. It's really a faith that's based in the direct awareness of the Third Noble Truth. Peace is possible. So here's the instruction. As you sit, first of all, smile. It's good for you. It's a way of uh, signaling to yourself that you uh, have had in your life experiences where you've known at least for a moment, probably more, probably more than one time, that peace is possible. It's not that elusive an awareness. comes probably in a time that there may have been so much ease in your life or so much contentment or a moment of such serenity where everything in your life, however it was, was acceptable. Everything in the life of the world, however it is, was acceptable. And it may have been in a time of such joy that everything, no matter how difficult, was also acceptable. But in a moment of knowing that really the heart has the capacity to do this whole life, that the quality of spaciousness of heart that's really the place that describes equanimity is really the characteristic, the fundamental capacity of the human heart. So see if, if you give yourself that directive, remember a time when everything was really just fine. It's likely that you find some moment, maybe more, 
maybe almost find some moment. That counts too. See if you can feel that moment or smell it or taste it or see it. I think we're all here in this practice because we have two kinds of experiences. We've had experiences that have let us know that life is inevitably challenging. We don't know what to expect the next. And I think we've also had experiences of knowing that in the middle of a life inevitably challenging, it's possible to be peaceful. And that really what we look for in practice is a way to touch that truth of peace enough to sustain us in our dealing with the challenges, big and small, day to day, so we can stay present and awake. We'll sit two or three more minutes. Just rest in peaceful mind. Don't do anything at all.
I haven't ever asked people to do that particular meditation in this kind of a group. So I'm not sure about how you'll feel about talking about it. It's an interesting, it was, um, it's a thing, it's an idea that seems so true to me that we all of us have, whether we know it or not, some degree of faith that peace is possible based on our own personal experience somewhat related to the way in which psychotherapists become psychotherapists. Nobody does it because, I don't think, because they read about it in a college course catalog. (laughs) I think everybody, I'd be surprised, you know, if someone said, you know, I made a decision when I was 14 years old, I'm going to be a therapist. Or unless they hadn't been in therapy. or A zoologist, maybe, but... um, But I think that decision, I'm going to be present to someone else's pain, comes from having had someone else be present to our pain, mostly. And from the conviction that it's possible to heal from pain. Do you think so? What do you think? A lot of therapists out there. You think, anybody thinks otherwise, how about that? Yeah. Somewhere or somewhere has to come some sense of hope that it could be otherwise. I, I believe that even when I was little. So, I'm completely open to where it might come from. The story about the Buddha uh, that people don't tell a lot is that he had presumably a profound meditation experience when he was five years old. Do you know that story? That he was sitting under a cherry blossom tree, I think. And that suddenly and quite spontaneously, his mind was enraptured in a a way that was filled with bliss, quite spontaneously. And it's often just noted, you know, first of all, all of the Buddha stories are legends anyway, and uh, or they're legends in the sense that they were told for 500 years before people wrote them down. So whether they were exactly portrayals of what happened to him or they're allegories about a particular way of coming to a certain kind of understanding, that's one of the little stories that's told, that at five years old he suddenly was spontaneously enraptured and had a sense of complete bliss. But I think that for everyone for whom there's a sense of hope, that hope has to be connected to some internalized sense of what feeling good feels like. Otherwise, we wouldn't know that there was another way to be. We wouldn't know that this is distress unless there was some uh, reference point of non-distress. Is that not true? I think it is. 
maybe certain things we take on um, well here here's a story out of my own meditation experience when I went to my first retreat I didn't go because uh, um, I didn't go because I thought I was going to get cured of my pain or that my I went because it was 1977 and everybody was going on meditation retreats, that's why. And uh, I had very little clue of uh, what was, in fact, supposed to happen or going to happen. Or uh, I thought it was just an exotic thing to do, you know. Um, it was a pretty exotic thing to do, go off without any of my family or nobody I knew. and So I did it. Um, And the, the first extended retreat that I did was, was um, two weeks. It was a long retreat to do in the beginning. And I didn't have really uh, some tremendous state of bliss come over me like the Buddha with his blossom tree. Mostly I was in tremendous pain and had a headache for a lot of it. and My body hurt, which was really surprising because I was doing a lot of yoga at the time. But at that time, I was so impressed with what my teachers said. I just loved what they said. They, um, the message that peace was possible was so comforting to me, even before I felt any sense of personal peace. Who was your teacher? There were three on that first retreat. Uh, Jacqueline Schwartz, who now teaches uh, independently in Texas, Richard Barsky, who has recently died, and Jack Cornfield. Um, and they talked about that they, you know, they taught the same things that we teach here now. That the Buddha taught that life is inevitably challenging. That we make the challenges worse by struggling with what we can't change, which is the second noble truth. And that the third noble truth is that peace is possible in this very life with this body and these stories. Not that we stop trying to make things work out in the way that we want. It wasn't calling for a life of passivity. It was calling for a life of really industry and engagement with an open heart. You do the best that you can and you don't fight with what you get. It's like so simple when you think about it. It's like completely common sense. And it's so uncommon to keep it in there all the time. We keep on struggling to make it different when it isn't going to be different. And to have the heart to say, you know, this isn't going to be different. Somebody once said, um, an early teacher of mine, uh, that the, I suppose in, in response to the question of what is enlightenment, there's the ability to say and really mean it when something bad happens to you, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. Um, so, uh, I'll, um, well, let me finish that, that particular trend of thought. In the beginning, then, uh, the truth is, I'm not so sure that I had a personal validation of the fact that I could think about my whole life and not And be okay with it. I think that I think I, I think I probably did. I think I did it via their faith. I think that there's a way in which, when other people, when one has a, when I have a sense that I here, 
start the sentence again, Sylvia. I had the sense when my teachers taught that their conviction that peace is possible came out of their experience that peace is possible. I think what I did was I borrowed their experience. I think that's what happens with therapists. That when you're not terribly startled or completely dismayed by what people tell you, that what gets conveyed is that getting better is a possibility. Healing is a possibility. You hold that space for them without saying that to them. I think my teachers held that space for me. And then increasingly over time, I found myself validating in myself, oh, look at that, there's a heart space possible where I can remember my whole life and what's going on here and there and what went on and what was the story of my family and what is the story of my family, and I'm okay with it. Not that I forgot what's pleasing and not pleasing. I've been a little bit taken aback with that uh, teaching that says, um, I saw a bumper sticker that says, never too late to have a happy childhood. I think, yes, it is. You know, it is. If you didn't, you didn't. Uh, you know, and it's changing, the, it's changing the, the truth if you make it something else. I think what's, what's possible is to be able to say, you know what? I didn't have a happy childhood. And here I am now. But it's, you know, now is not then. Now is now. It's a huge piece of work to be able to do that, to not have that truth color the whole of your life with bitterness. That's maybe really one of the biggest ways in which what the Buddha taught overlaps on being a therapist. We get very frightened when, it's, when our experience is difficult and to have it not leak out. I'll tell you a story. Um, I think this is a good story to tell. It's not my story, except I was there. I was uh, uh, taking a train, I was back on the East Coast teaching, and um, taking a train from somewhere in Massachusetts down to uh, Washington, D.C., I think, or Philadelphia, it doesn't matter. And I got on the train and there was an elderly couple, elderly means older than I am, uh, sitting in the back of the train holding hands, man and a woman, holding hands, riding, and just holding, not talking to each other, just riding along. And so I pass them and I go and I sit down and uh, they get up and go to the bathroom, they're still sitting, and I come back and they're still sitting. And you know, it's a long trip, so I go back and forth, I get up to stretch, they're still sitting, mostly not talking. And so by and by, I stopped to talk to them, where are they going, are they going home, are they going there? Anyway, they were going to either Washington or Philadelphia to have some um, surgery that he needed. They live in a small town, he needed some very kind of particular complicated surgery that they had an expert in wherever it was that they were going. Um, so I'd constructed this whole story about, oh, they must be married 50 years, 55 years, and probably wonderful to hear about that. So on one of these, they're telling me the story about the eye surgery. I said, um, how long have you been married? Just thinking they'll have a lot of pleasure to tell me. 
And uh, the woman has been doing all the talking. This man is just sitting. He looked happy that she was doing all the talking for them. And she said, oh, we're not married. We just live together. <laughs> and uh, so we've been together about three years. And um, so, so much for that first story that I made up about them. See, they make up stories about everybody that don't begin to be true. So um, we're not married. We just live together. And then his wife had died several years before. He'd had a bunch of children, raised them up. And... Uh, she said, and she told me about her life. She had married somewhat later, and uh, had also several, three or four children. She said, um, and uh, we raised them up, my husband and I. She said we did a good job. They're all raised up. She said, and then uh, three years ago, what do you know? One day I came home and there was a note from him. I'm gone. Just left, up and left, just like that. She said I was enraged. I was furious. So I'm trying to think of what do you say after that. <laughs> so I, I tried to think of an empathic thing to say. So I said, uh, you know, I imagined, you know, she said, after 44 four years, he left me. And I thought, oh, must have been such a difficult 44 years. You know, I said, uh, must have been really hard those 44 years. And she, you know. She said, no. She said, it was the best 44 years of my life. <laughs> she said, we had a really good time. We were having a good time. We raised up our children. We had nice children. They have good families. Um, and looked at me, and she said, uh, you know, like, well, how could I have asked the question? I said, well, you know, uh, sometimes... Uh, it, uh, Oh, I guess what happened is that they asked me, then what do you do? What do you do? What's your work? So I said, uh, well, I, um, I teach, and I, I didn't feel like starting in with the Buddhism on the train standing. I said, I teach, and I teach about having a good attitude in, in life. Because well, that's really what this is about, having a good attitude. So I said, I teach about having a good attitude in life, and sometimes I write about it, and I write stories, and I, I, I might write your story someday. And um, she said, well, what would you write about me? I said, well, about your good attitude. She said, what good attitude? I told her I was furious. So, uh, <laughs> so getting more and more backed up here. <laughs> because it hadn't even occurred to her that she had a... I said, well, you know, some people it might happen that they would... You said, you know... <laughs> I said, I noticed that you said you were furious. Some people, they would be furious, and it would color, the furiousness would color their recollection of everything that had come before. She thought about that, and she said, but that's not the truth. She said, the truth is, it was the best 44 years of my life. <laughs> So the question of really how to be able to hold the truth of your life in a wide enough lens that you could be startled or challenged or even enraged, infuriated, grief-stricken, and not have any particular one of those problematic, afflictive emotions so color the whole of your life that you can't continue, really. And the truth is, I don't think it's all from insight and wisdom. I, I, I really want to put a caveat on that. I think 
that some people are naturally more resilient than others. I think that's true. People come through hair-raising experiences, get off a plane that lands on fire and whatever, and fly the next day. You know, <laughs> they just do. And other people can't drive by an airport for the whole rest of their life. You know, it's just it's a different. The people have different physiologies. That's really true. Also, people have different families that teach them different stratagems about how to deal with the difficulties in the life. Some families really are more expansive, philosophical. You know, this is life. What can you do? And others not. And I think there's a certain amount of uh, personal wisdom uh, experience <coughs> that um, in the long run, I think, maybe is... I don't know, it was for me the important thing to discover that it is possible to be in a mind state and a heart state where you can purposely bring up the difficulties of your life now or then and find that you're all right with them. In essence, that you forgive them. You don't change them, but you forgive them. Say, this is the way it was, or this is the way it is. It cannot be another way. If I try to make it another way, first of all, it isn't going to, it's just what it is. And I'll have tension in my mind. You know, when, every time I say that, it, sound, it comes out sounding so ridiculously mundane. Um, but it's ridiculously mundane. It is what it is. That's it. You know, because of this, then that. People are the way they are because of every single thing. Things fall out the way they do because of everything. Not because of me or in spite of me. A friend of mine is um, uh, learning to be a mindfulness teacher. She lives on the East Coast and is teaching more and more and came out here to sit at uh, Spirit Rock a couple of months ago. Sat for a month, I think, and... Then uh, on the day that she finished, came to stay with me uh, at my home up in Sonoma County for a couple of days before she went home. And I picked her up at the bus, and she was all excited about her experience. And uh, she, exp she described to me some particular experience on some certain day where she said, suddenly I got it, that things are just the way they are. And, you know, you have to really know what the other person means because otherwise, out of context, it's a nothing thing to say. Of course things are just what they are. Well, you know. Uh, but there's a way in which if you, you know, if I, I know her well, you know, so we feel each other. When somebody says, you know, that's just the way it is, and you get it, that they profoundly get it, that it's just the way it is. It's not because of me, it's not in spite of me, it's not a reward or a punishment, it's just the way it is. And the, uh, it, it so moves it to the only possible response in terms of if you want to be peaceful, is to say it's just the way it is. So I said, well, you know, it's wonderful that you know this. I said you should... Uh, it had come around some particular story. She'd been preoccupied with some story about her daughter and this and that, and why hadn't she done it this way and she did it the other way. And, da, da, da. 
and the mind is in a knot for a certain amount of time, and the whole time that the mind is in the knot and struggling, you're in pain because that's what suffering is. And she said, one day I just realized it's just what it is. It's out of my hands, you know. And you just do it. And you can feel the energy that just goes out of that knot. It's like the knot unties. And you say, that's it. That's the way it is. I said, well, you should tell that story now that you're beginning to teach. She said, well, you know, it's just my story. People have other. But it isn't the story. Everybody's got their own knot. But when I tell you that story, and it isn't my knot, it's her knot, and you don't even know what the knot's about, don't you get it about the knot that unties? Who here could say, I have, an experience. I have had personally in my heart the experience of not untying? <laughs> there. Now, all of a sudden, and the situation is the same. Nothing changed except the knot untied. Yeah. I don't. Do you want to tell me what's the name of it? It was Knots. Knots. Yeah, Knots. Yeah. R.D. Lang. Yeah. R.D. Lang, the British psychologist. No, I don't know about that. You read it 20 times. I should at least go and look at it once. <laughs> no, but I... I was, Well, I think it'll be very helpful for me to look at because I think a lot these days about the way in which principally the knot reties itself in me is when I have not forgiven someone or something for doing something in a certain way. Because it's another way of thinking, if only, if only they had X, or if only they had Y, or if only... But they didn't. So it's an extra, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mind maneuver. It's amazing to think that the mind of its own self goes around tying knots, you know, everybody wants, it's wonderful to listen to the Dalai Lama teaching because here he comes and he says, everybody wants to be happy. They do. I believe that. Everybody wants to be happy. I believe that that's true. And still, the mind, not out of perversity and not out of naughtiness, out of bad habits, actually, out of bad habits, keeps on tying itself in knots. And that maybe one way of thinking about the whole of practice is that it's about trying to untie the knot. Sometimes you untie this one, another one ties. That uh, It's a continual knot. And so I'm not entirely sure. That there isn't a tremendous element of grace involved. Intention to untie the knots, determination to untie the knots, patience with the knots untying, energy, if you're, if you, if you're following those, you, you'll know that I'm listing the paramitas, the qualities of a um, of a awakened mind, according to the Buddhist. Let me see if they all work. They should. They should be all not untires. I would love it to have this come true. Let's see. Uh, generosity, morality, renunciation, uh, energy. Wisdom, determination, patience, 
truthfulness, loving kindness, uh, equanimity. They should all be not untires. Telling the truth certainly unties a knot. Here the woman in that train told me, they were the best 44 years of my life. I was furious at the end, but they were the best 45 years of my life. Um, a lot of times I think we have, I, I, never mind we, I have the habit of not telling the truth, not in a way, uh, to myself, not even a way of to, to somebody else, out of habit. Um, I, I, I've been watching it uh, recently because I caught myself recently on my on route from someplace to someplace else, and I'd had a million things to do that day, or many things to do that day, that's in truthfulness, many things to do, <laughs> and rushing from one to the next, doing them, and rushing yet to another appointment or another class or another something, and hearing myself say to myself, oh, I'm so tired. And I thought to myself, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, you're really all charged up. You're having a good time. It's a good day. You know? <laughs> it's such a bad habit, you know. I think I come from probably on some level, you know, some, I, mean, I don't even put it on my parents. They're long gone. Somewhere in me is a program that complains. It says, ah, oh, I'm tired. But, you know, it's not true. <laughs> So truthfulness, and, and if I told myself, oh, I'm so tired, by the time I got to wherever I was going, I'd probably be demoralized and convinced that I was tired and maybe not do a good job because I'd be convinced I was tired. But say, what's actually true? I'm not tired. I just did a lot of things. That's true. Truthfulness unties knots. Um, energy is certainly necessary to untie knots because otherwise we get... Um, I think what what has to happen for the knot to untie is there has to be a certain amount of clarity in the mind, which means it has to have a certain amount of energy in it, otherwise it fogs. Um, it's been very clear to me that uh, when I see myself tying myself in a knot of a habit, that it isn't seeing enough that uh, that drops it. Sometimes... You get caught in a habit that, for one reason or another, you just can't put down. And then if there, there, there are two courses. I, I was talking about a little earlier today. One of them is skillful and the other one is unskillful. The unskillful one is I give myself a bad time for the fact that I can't put it down. That's unskillful. Ties are not tighter. It's the sort of thing where I say to myself, if you were really a spiritual person, Sylvia, you'd be able to get over this annoyance or whatever. That's not true. I mean, A has nothing to do with B. You know, it's a, just, it's a story that spiritual people don't get annoyed. Spiritual people get everything. Or I don't even know what a spiritual person is. You know, I suppose we could have a definition of a spiritual person as a person who never got annoyed, but then I'm not it because I get annoyed. But, but we have certain things. That we set it up. We make a rule. Spiritual people don't get annoyed. And then we annoy ourselves that we're annoyed. So I tie myself more in a knot. If I see myself tying myself more in a knot and don't give myself a bad time about it, as a matter of fact, if I'm kind to myself, if I'm compassionate, if I say to myself, boy, you're in pain, then it's likely that I'll ease up a little bit on myself, take a breath, something. If I stop really 
telling myself the story about how not good I am. The knot might untie by itself. <coughs> you do something else. You breathe for a while. So energy, determination. Oh, that was the that was the that was the determination meditation that we did before. I've been thinking about that and just recently developing it. That one about try to remember a time when you were just fine. Did that work for you? Did you remember something? Because I have a sense that that's the piece that connects us to our own sense of hope. That if one second in our life we felt it's okay, that's enough for us to have known that okay is our is a possibility in this life. And so choosing, hmm? Well, I'm not even sure that I can choose to be in that space. Because sometimes I think that, you know, I'll, I'll remember the time that I was so... My, the first time I tested that, I think, uh, I discovered I was just feeling so peaceful in my heart. I was in the middle of a meditation retreat, and I thought, I'm going to give myself a peacefulness test now. <laughs> I'm going to think about my, uh, my uh, daughter, my daughter who was then 14, I guess, uh, 15, maybe, traveling with my father in Mexico, who uh, had developed asthma not long before. And it was a, and she had some serious bouts with it, and I was worried about it. And so, especially when she was gone in another country, and I would think, um, I wonder what's going to happen with that asthma. Is it going to get worse? Or um, So usually the thought about the, where is she? Is she okay? Did she take her asthma medicine with her? Make me a little frightened. So that was the test. I was feeling so peaceful. I said, okay, now I'm going to have the, uh, the thought about Emily and the asthma. and see what happens. <laughs> and you could think the thought, and you think the thought, and you realize, I love her so much. She probably took the medicine with her. They have clinics in Mexico. They have doctors in Mexico. My father is there. Should probably be all right. It's probably fine. And you watch that you can give yourself an equanimity test. You can give yourself a test. This love relationship isn't working anymore. I feel bad about it, but it's what's true. Every once in a while, you get to be able to give yourself a test. It's like taking your temperature. And I'm, a, I'm really all right. If there were times in your life, I mean, because there have been times in everybody's life when they're quite happy, but then you say, well, I can't be that happy again because I'm, I don't have that same constellation of happiness things. But it's not a question of happy. It's a question of uh, expansive heart. Really, equanimity is a, is, a, is a question of spaciousness of heart. You can say, it's just okay how it is. I like it or I don't like it. I'm pleased with it or I'm not pleased with it. That's really, the, for me, the, the great insight is to be able to say, you can be happy without being pleased. It's a, it's actually, happy isn't such a good word. Contented. Contented. Satisfied. Satisfied. Search the whole world. There's nothing you'll find. There's not, one, nothing, something, nothing more rare. There's one thing you'll find. There's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. Um, is that Rolling Stones? Or? I, think, I think it is. It's a long, long time ago, but... Nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. It's hard 
to just get the mind to sit down and say, okay, just, it's okay. It's enough. It's okay. I'm satisfied. So that's the equanimity test. Can you hold, not can you forget your life? Can you get it all perfect? Can you now have a happy childhood? Can nobody have asthma? Everybody's got everything. If not this, that. That's really the equanimity meditation. All individuals are heir to their own karma. It's such a complicated phrase to say, when I first heard it, didn't like it at all. It sounded like tough luck, you know, whatever you've got, you know, it's yours. And that doesn't, doesn't that sound very callous? Like whatever, you made your bed, you lie in it or something like that. It doesn't mean that at all. It means I am short because all of my parents and grandparents were short all the way back to whenever, because, you know, for whatever reasons, <coughs> genetics or poverty or whatever, you know, that there's, everything has a lawful cause. Not a, not a purposeful one. It's not that I deserve it or don't deserve it. Everything is lawfully caused. That's what karma means. You see, every individual is heir to their own karma. It means just the confluence of circumstances that happened since the beginning of time are all responsible for what's happening now. It means nobody's guilty. It means that really everybody is forgivable. They couldn't have been otherwise, anybody. doesn't mean everybody's likable, but forgivable. It's a huge... Sometimes, on, 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 uh, especially around the times of, uh, of uh, major national elections on Wednesday mornings, we do loving-kindness. <laughs> <laughs> People particularly, <laughs> for years after that, people try to hold in their hearts those political figures <laughs> who we find unforgivable. <laughs> but the, 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 the clue in that is not so that you'll be a saint, but so you'll be comfortable. It's so uncomfortable to live with a mad heart, isn't it? I mean, it's not for the benefit of the other person, really. For the benefit of yourself. I mean, people who... <laughs> I can't make any political statements. Here, so <laughs> I think it is too late to have a happy childhood and too late to have the elections again and too late to take back anything. But it's not too late to have this moment wisely. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, on one of his tapes, he was talking about his holiness mm-hmm. and saying, you know, for 30-some years, he's been, um, you know, <laughs> having this equanimity and, and holding out loving kindness. And he says all the time he should be going around saying, oh, shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, in fact, one of the things I think about is that um, the Dalai Lama is probably as well-known internationally and esteemed as an icon of peacefulness because of that. You know, that people who never heard of the Buddha or don't know anything about Buddhism uh, recognize the face of the Dalai Lama these days. I think that I, 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 I see the face of the Dalai Lama now on billboards advertising everything, in the, you know, in the world, you know. Not meditation retreats. 
It's kind of like if you put up, well, they're just a few like international symbols, like the Coca-Cola script or the Mickey Mouse, or either, that are internationally recognizable. And His Holiness is getting right up there with an internationally recognized face. And I don't think it's because people know something about the Buddha particularly, but they know that here is a person who steadfastly and resolutely has been determined to operate out of a peaceful and loving heart, despite everything that has happened to him and to Tibet and to Tibetan Buddhism. And I think that people know that. I think they get that. And they think that somehow he represents for them, he represents for me, as for you probably, as we each do for each other, the possibility that you can do this life not mad. That's what everybody wants to do. Imagine, to do this life not mad. Um, somebody said, one. I, I don't know who this is now, this is an apocryphal story probably, who even knows if there was a true person. But one of my teachers telling a story about some um, teacher, I think it was in the Zen tradition because it was about her death utterance. And in the Zen tradition, they have a very uh, particular keen interest in death utterances. 